0: Okay, this morning let's uh, take our Bibles. We're going to be looking at Second Peter, and then quickly going to back to Second Thessalonians this morning, and then looking at again some uh, mentioning some other passages of Scripture. So have your Bible ready this morning. I guess uh, all messages are teaching messages in, in some respect, but some messages are more more teaching. And so that's what it's going to be this morning. So put your thinking caps on, get your Bibles ready, and I want you to think through uh, what's being said here. But in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, mentioned last time, in verse number 10 and then verse number 12, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its workings will be burned up. And then in verse 12... It says, looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, that's Peter talking about the the end of the tribulation period, where the second coming of Christ uh, takes place. Thessalonians really is talking about the beginning of that period. And so let's turn over to that passage uh, in Second Thessalonians. And according to some, the Bible, is they say, is unclear about end times. Eschatology is the, is the word uh, in theology. It means the study of future things. Uh, they say it only divides Christians. Uh, some say, let's just be pan-millennialists, and uh, everything will pan out in the end. Uh, Of course, eschatological agnosticism appears to have become a fashion in our day, and certainly it will pan out the way God intends, but the fact does not absolve believers of their obligation to study and believe the prophetic scriptures that describe how it will pan out. See, the scriptures not only admonish Christians to be watchful, whenever they would live on this earth, but even confers a special blessing upon those who carefully study the portions and uh, that most completely unveils the climactic grand scheme of God's plan of history. Uh, Revelation chapter one, verse three, it says, "Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then Revelation 22:7, the last book of the Bible says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So the repercussions for not studying f- future things are far-reaching, because once people ignore or dispose of the true meaning of the word of God, And the truth contained therein, they can justify just about anything. And without faith in the sufficiency of Scripture, and without the foundation of the Old Testament, including the message of the prophets, it will become easier even for believers to believe a lie, to believe what is false. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what... As far as the end times, are you ignoring or rejecting, or maybe you haven't learned it yet, you haven't heard it yet. See a reminder about the verse preceding verse number five of chapter two, where it says, "Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god and object of worship, worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God." The sense is the day of the Lord is not present unless first in sequence within that day, there has come an apostasy, and following the apostasy's beginning, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Therefore, the falling away and the revealing of the man of lawlessness are signs which fall within the early stages of the day of the Lord after it has begun and not prior to it, so based on these findings, as I mentioned last week, Paul can encourage his readers that the non-occurrence of these signs means the day of the Lord has not yet begun, even today we're encouraged to know that the day of the Lord has not been had has not yet begun. see God. In uh, Thessalonians promises the believers not wrath but rest and not judgment but his presence in chapter 2 verse number 1 of Thessalonians 2 it says now we request you brethren with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him so again talking about the presence of the Lord so the day of the Lord is first triggered by the rapture of the saints in the air to meet the Lord and be with him forever, which triggers the start of God's wrath identified by the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Consequently, the coming of Christ for the church is followed by an extended period of time in which God releases all the judgments within the tribulation period. So God's children, the church, in whom he loves, will be caught up to himself before the seven-year period. So in the scheme of things, uh, in the premillennial eschatology, we see that the, the church age would come first, which we're in right now, the age of grace. Uh, And then from the church age, we we see the rapture of the church. And then that begins the day of the Lord, the outpouring of God's wrath. And uh, then that leads through the seven-year tribulation period. And then uh, in the the beginning of the uh, seven-year tribulation period, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the abomination of desolation, where uh, the Antichrist sits on the throne in Jerusalem and proclaims himself to be God, like it already said there in verse number uh, 4 of Thessalonians in verse 5. So we see that that will lead into a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth where the saints come back with him, and then there would be the release of Satan, uh, a rebellion at the end, and then where Peter picked it up, was the end of the tribulation where there'll be, of course, the great white throne judgment, heaven and earth, the old heaven and earth are gone, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, the second coming, Armageddon, the sheep and the goat judgments, uh, the binding of Satan, the resurrection of uh, tribulation and Old Testament saints take place right there at the end of the tribulation. So saying all that, uh, just to say that the church will be caught up before the seven-year tribulation. Now, if you just take your Bibles and turn over to First Thessalonians chapter 4, just about a page ahead, notice in verse number 13 through 18 where he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest of who have no hope for if we believe that jesus died and rose again even so god will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in jesus for this we say to you by the word of the lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, in that passage of Scripture, it's it's talking about the rapture of the church, the Lord coming for the church and taking the church out before uh, the seven-year period starts. So the rapture of the church is the the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ before the seven-year tribulation to translate the church from the earth and between this event and his glorious return with his saints, that would be the second coming uh, to reward believers according to the work. So from last time, we looked at before that, that... The book of Thessalonians deals with what happens before that time, before the day of the Lord, and then into the day of the Lord. And he's reassuring, remember, the Christians that, listen, the day of the Lord had not come. Even though you got a false letter from Paul, you thought it was from Paul, it wasn't from Paul, even though they they threw you off track as to what you learned about the day of the Lord, I'm going to remind you again about what I taught you way back then. And he said, first of all, there's going to be a defiance. And that defiance is going to come uh, yet to come. It didn't come yet. The apostasy, that means the falling away uh, from true religion, true faith uh, of uh, the true church. And then, of course, the man of sin is revealed. The son of destruction. He will be revealed. And then... Before that, though, there's and the reason why it has not happened yet is because Paul is telling us that there's going to be a delay. The delay is presently in effect. Uh, and if you notice in verse number 5, this is what he says to them. He reminds them again of the delay. He says, do you not remember, verse 5, that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. So the Apostle Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers that in the past, he instructed them on the end-time matters. He didn't think uh, end-time truths should actually be withheld from new converts, and we know that the Thessalonians were new converts, so they they were converted out of idolatry and paganism. And so he is saying to them, listen, don't you remember, which implies a yes answer, to them and conveys even a kind of a mild rebuke. Come on, guys, don't let your memory become distorted. Or at this point in time, stay alert. Remain sober-minded. Even though you're going through persecution, you're not in the day of the Lord. All right, the day of the Lord, these things have to take place before it comes. So he tells them that there's a purpose for the delay, too. And notice in verse number 6 of 2 Thessalonians, it says, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. So the word no in verse 6 is a very telling word here because it is a verb in perfect tense of the Greek. And the the linguist uh, Molten uh, points out the perfect tense is the most important exegetically of all the Greek tenses, and by definition the force of the perfect tense is simply that it describes an event that completed in the past has results existing in the present time in relation to the time of the speaker. In other words, Paul Paul's past instruction has resulted... results. Actually, Paul's past instruction has results existing in the present. Now, what is that? Well, it says... They know something, in, in verse number 6, and you know, he's stressing that to them, you know this very well. You know that what is holding him back, this man of lawlessness, the lawless one who is not Satan, but some definite person who is doing the work of Satan, and the implication is that, that this man is hidden, uh, he, but suddenly will be manifested. He will be revealed. He'll be disclosed. You know that, he's telling them. So the real purpose for the restraint is a divine purpose. That is, the restraint is that he, the man of lawlessness, may be revealed in his time, as it says in in verse number 6, or at the proper time. Therefore, something presently, is being exercised to hold back the unveiling of the man of sin. One commentator said the restraint prevents the premature manifestation of the man of sin as the very embodiment of iniquity. Now, we already learned in Second Peter that everything's on schedule. You see that the man of sin can only be revealed when the time is ripe. When history is ripe, the man of lawlessness will only be revealed at a divinely appointed time. That means God is in control of everything, every event that happens. He knows how to control the activities of history, and he knows how to advance and control evil. But remember, he's being patient, holding it back, too, from Peter, so people can be saved, so the gospel can go out. So what do they know? They know who the man, they know that he's going to be a man, although they don't know who he is. But they do know this. They do know what he's going to be like. They do know what holds him back from being revealed. They do know that. And we ought to know that too. We ought to know that because this is going to encourage us. It's going to comfort us. It's going to bolster our faith in God's plan, to know that in a a very real way, it's it's exciting days for believers. We see a lot of things happening that no one else has ever viewed in history. And and we pretty much, we read these passages and we say, wow, this looks like it's happening right now. Like, how close is the Lord? Well, we ought to be ready, no matter how long he tarries, we ought to be ready and know these things, because these are the very things that are going to make our our faith strong. If persecution comes our way and they clamp down on believers and on the church and they begin to persecute us, uh, what are we going to do? Well, we know these passages are here, so we have to do the same thing the Thessalonians are doing and to keep the faith. So from the prophet Daniel, that's why I read that this morning again, we can infer that this man will rise from some kind of revived Roman Empire. If you turn with me quickly, it's also on the screen, Dan- to Daniel chapter 7, let me uh, just identify the place in the word of God this information is found, and, it, and, ex- and it kind of explain it briefly, because Paul is getting his information from the prophets, specifically from Daniel. He says in verse number 15 of Daniel chapter 7, as for me Daniel, me Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these of these things. Now if you if you just been reading Daniel maybe at some time in your Christian life, at the end of Daniel, uh, the prophet is, is called to seal up prophecy until the end. Now we come to Thessalonians, we come to Revelations, we come to uh, Second Peter, we come to uh, the Gospels, and we see now God unfolds his plan and begins to open the curtain and let us look in to see not everything, but all that we need to know uh, to know what god 's doing, so we can just trust the, what what he 's doing and so n- notice in verse seventeen the meaning of the four beasts in daniel seven seventeen these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who 'll arise from the earth, and then the meaning of the fourth beast in verse nineteen. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with his teeth of iron and his claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remaining with it the remainder with his feet and then to verse twenty three of Daniel seven, thus he said, "The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now, in this illustration here, this illustration from Daniel tells us there's already been four kingdoms, There's been the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persia kingdom, the Greece kingdom. All these kingdoms have come, risen, and have fallen. And then Rome came. And Rome was the very uh, kingdom that was here when Jesus came the first time. But that kingdom still lives on in a very real way. Now, if you look at verse number 20 of Daniel 7, it talks about the meaning of the 10 horns. And the meaning of the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. The ten horns actually represent the kings depicted in chapter 2 of Daniel as the ten toes of this image here. The kings who are at the end time, will give their authority to the supreme ruler of the revived Roman Empire, which will be Antichrist. And that's why we read Revelation, because what does Revelation say? In chapter 17, verse 12, then the ten horns, which you saw were ten kings, who have not received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast the beast being the Antichrist, for one hour, and in verse 13, these have one purpose, that they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. So it's interesting from Daniel to consider that unlike the predecessors, or the kingdoms that came before the Babylonian, the Medo-Persia, the Greco-Kingdom, and the Roman world empire, the Roman empire was never really destroyed. It fell apart. Rome was simply divided up, and part of it eventually melted into the nations of Europe in the world. So the Bible then uh, predicts In the last days, the old Roman empire will be reunited in the form of a ten kingdom confederation led by Antichrist, led by the little horn. And the feet and the ten toes of iron and clay we see uh, on this image here. That is from chapter 2 and chapter 7 of Daniel. The meaning of the little horn, the fourth beast, is symbolic of Rome. Therefore, the ten horns equal kings. Coming out of the fourth beast represent a confederation of kings or nations that emanate from the old Roman Empire. So that means the final ruler, of the last Gentile world empire is symbolized as the little horn, and that is Antichrist. And right here in verse 24 of Daniel 7, it says, And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous one. Now that's identifying the character of the Antichrist. Right, that he is a man, that he is a king, that he is different than anyone who's ever ruled before him. In Daniel chapter 8, he is the king of fierce countenance. In Daniel 9, he is the prince that will come. In Daniel 10, he is the willful king. We know that in Daniel 7 and verse 23, he will subdue three kings. That means he will devour the whole earth and tread down and crush it. You know what that means? That means he will be a military genius. And he will do it without war. He will do it without conflict. And also from Daniel, we learn that he'll be a political genius. He'll be an intellectual genius. He will be an oratorical genius. Verse 25, he will speak against the most high He'll be a proud man, a blasphemer. He will wear down the saints, it tells us. Without war, he'll wear down the saints. And how will he do that? He'll do it economically. He'll do it politically. He'll do it religiously. That's why when you go to Revelation and you come to Revelation 13 and it talks about the mark of the beast, well, what is the mark of the beast given for? So people can't sell. Buy things. They can't worship in the way they want. They have to worship him. They can't move freely about without governmental restrictions. See, that's how he will trample over uh, the saints. He'll make alterations in times and in law. He will try to change God's ordained pattern of things. And, of course, Daniel 7.25, it says, And they will give... They will be given into his hand for a time, time, and a half of time. So that means that's going to be the significance of uh, uh, years or three and a half years and three and a half years, seven years uh, he will be in power. Of course, verse number 26 says, But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. So we already are told in Daniel, God wins right? And all of us who are believers, we're on the winning side. That should encourage us. That should bolster our faith. That, that, should, that should cause us to, no matter what goes on in the world, what happens, what persecution comes, God's plan's not going to change. This is still going to take place. And I believe, that, like I said, that the church is going to be taken out before that. So the little horn of Daniel 7 is the coming man of sin, the Antichrist, who rules seven years and is destroyed by Christ at his second coming. Now, by way of summary, three key points uh, show that this final form of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, will be ruling in the world when Christ comes. So the Daniel 2 and the 10 toes on the feet, uh, made of iron and clay, are extensions of the iron legs which represent the ancient Roman Empire. Daniel 7 and 10, the little horn of the Antichrist, are on the head of the fourth beast, which also represents the ancient Roman Empire. Now, since the original Roman Empire never existed in a ten-kingdom form, it seems to be picturing a new form of a Roman empire or the final phase of the empire. The stone, which I didn't mention, that strikes the statue and destroys it uh, is considered uh, to be represent Jesus Christ when he returns. But until then, since Antichrist will rule over the world at the time Christ returns, it must mean that this final form of the fourth kingdom is the future kingdom of Antichrist that will be forged together out of the nations of the Roman Empire. So that means that in this next image here, we have to realize that the feet of iron and clay, iron and clay don't really mix together. So that means all the nations are trying to mix together. They're making every effort to adhere together. And it will be the Antichrist that brings them together. So all that remains is for ten of the nations in the mix to rise to the top and form a western confederacy where the Antichrist will rise and rule the world during the tribulation and the great tribulation. So we, we see from Scripture that there's going to be a... Three and a half years, the beginning of the three and a half years is what the Bible calls the beginning of birth pains, like a woman being pregnant, but she didn't, didn't, doesn't have her baby yet, right? And then in the middle of it, we, we have the abomination of desolation, where Satan, uh, the Antichrist, sits on the throne and proclaims himself to be God. And then the Great Tribulation, in the, great tri- in the first part of the, the Tribulation, God's pouring out, his, he's breaking the seals uh, now, this right here, this image here shows the that last part of uh, the revived Roman Empire where it comes together in ten nations or ten uh, kingdoms. And then this next one shows that of God pouring out his wrath. On uh, the first three and a half years, it's going to be the, the seals are broken, and then the The last seal is broken, and that leads into the trumpet judgments, and that leads then into the larger trumpet, leads into the bowl judgments. So we have all these judgments of the day of the Lord being poured out upon the world during the tribulation. But remember, during that time, what is God doing with Israel? Israel's in the land, and he's bringing Israel back to Himself. Israel, remember, they, they think the Antichrist is Messiah. In the beginning, he makes a deal with them. He says, hey, go ahead and sacrifice. Get, get your temple. Do what you want. And then he breaks that, that uh, covenant with them in the middle, and he, gets the, he wants them to worship him, but now they already see Christ as their Lord, and he begins to persecute them, and that's going to be taking place too. So the tribulation, I believe, is not for the church. The tribulation is to bring Israel back and graft them back into their the olive tree, as it, like it says in Romans, and bring them back as his people for those who are going to be saved. And he does that while they're in the land. So, all right, saying all that, I'm I said that for this reason, that the Thessalonians knew this. And we ought to know this. They knew the character of the Antichrist. They knew who 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 he would be. And so saying that, let's move back to Second Thessalonians and Look, pick it up in verse number seven, because there's going to be a time where the restrainer who's holding back the mystery of a lawlessness and holding back the Antichrist is going to be removed. Notice in verse seven for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until the day he is taken out of the way. All right, now, verse seven. Now, you must agree with this passage that the, uh, there's an aggressive force of evil already is operative and evident all around us. Every day we look at the news, we look at our world, we see what's going on. All we see is a bunch of twisted evil. We see not truth, but lies. All right, And people are beginning to, to, to believe the lies. It was, uh, it was then, back then, but it's going to be more so now. But look at the passage. It says the mystery of lawlessness. Now, what does that refer? Well, the term mysterion does not mean something mysterious or unintelligible, but rather something formerly unknown, but now revealed. And, that, and it's not revealed to everyone. It's revealed to the church. It's revealed to us who are in the know because we have the scriptures. So there is something undiscoverable by mere human search and is only known when God reveals it. And where does God reveal it? He reveals it right here in the Word of God for his children to know so they can be comforted, so they can know God's plan, so they can have faith in what he's doing and not just look at the world and see the world falling apart all around us and see how weak and vulnerable it is. So the lawless one... Or the lawlessness, in verse 7, is not simply referring to disorder or the violation of law, but it is referring to what is behind the lawlessness. Behind the lawlessness is the aim of the devil to overthrow the law of God and establish his own rule. That's what's going on in the world. You think all this craziness going on is because everybody's organized? No, It's because he's organized and he's behind the scene wanting to set the world up so he can establish his own rule, and God's going to let him do it. In other words, even though the evil man of sin is not revealed yet, the spirit that will permeate his career is already operational. Even though This lawlessness is working now, it is working under restraint. That means it is not as bad as it will be, or it could be. Something is in the way of it fully, from it fully gushing out. But that will not always be the case. The restrainer will be removed. Now if you look again at verse number 7, it says, only he who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, literally, that sounds like this. Only the one holding back now till out of the way he becomes. So whatever and whomever is performing the restraining function, it will be taken out of the midst of everything. And then there will be manifest an unrestrained, monstrous evil that will go to such depths as to defy explanation or description. So who is the restrainer? Who's holding back this part of the plan of God? All sorts of interpretations have been suggested. Matter of fact, there's so many. It's even hard to list them, but some say it's the Roman Empire, some say it's human government, some say it's Satan himself, some say it's Elijah, some say it's the angel Michael, some say it's the preaching of the gospel, and others say other things. But see, the the most important question one must ask and answer at this point is, what is able to hold back the endeavors of Satan? See, the answer can only be only a supernatural being can truly hold back the workings of Satan. So the fact that the restrainer will be out of the mist, as it says in our text, seems to speak of one who is now in the mist. Now, that seems to point clearly to the Holy Spirit, who is now here in person. And is in the indweller of the saints, the indwelling the indwelling spirit will be out of the mist of this present scene when the returning Christ calls his church to himself. So since the removal of the restrainer takes place before the manifestation of the lawlessness, this identification implies the pre-tribulational rapture that I believe the church is going to get taken out before the day of the Lord begins. Now, I need to remind you that it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit will be taken out, but his restraining influence will be taken out of the way. The difference lies in the meaning between residence and presence. So as a, as a member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent and has always been in the world. We see the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-1. He's there when the world's being created. And he uh, certainly will continue to be present during the seven-year tribulation period. But it will be a different ministry for him then. Remember, at Pentecost, that's the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit assumes a special relationship to the church as its indweller. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, and that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. See, that's the promise. So after the completion of his work with the church and in the church, he will resume the relationship he had with mankind before Pentecost so when the Holy Spirit which is the indweller of believers making up the body of Christ the church removes his residence not his presence then and only then can the man of lawlessness be revealed and consequently the church must be removed before the man of sin is exposed so the spirit will be taken out of the way in two senses number one the temple in which he dwells, that is, the church, will be removed. And secondly, after the rapture of the church, he will no longer be baptizing people into the body of Christ and using the presence of the church in the world to restrain the forces of godlessness and wickedness and the mystery of iniquity and the man of sin. So in other words, the church has to be taken out of here before he can begin to unleash his plan upon the world. Now, brethren, not until the church is removed from the earth and the Spirit lifts his all-powerful restraints will the lawless Antichrist be revealed. Now, getting back to 2 Thessalonians, there is in that, as Paul lays it out for us here, a deception, but also a destruction after the delay and notice what it says in verse number eight. He goes right to, to the juggler vein, and he says that the there's going to the career of Antichrist is going to be ruined. Uh, the lawlessness, uh, the lawless one will be ruined. It says in verse eight. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring an end by the appearance of His coming. So this is the third mention of the man of lawlessness. That is given, and the repetition is is really stressing the importance of his unveiling. And how will will the Lord do it? Verse number 8, the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth. The breath of God has always been a fierce weapon and recorded in the word of God, like in Psalms where it says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. God speaks, and He comes into being, right? God, God breathes, and the Antichrist and His uh, mission is done. So the breath of God is is the power that proceeds from the Lord Jesus, and is no match for the Antichrist. And of course, Jesus destroys with ease His blast this blasphemous individual by the breath of His mouth. And uh, here, of course. This is a picture of Christ's triumph over the adversary. This is already spoken of in Daniel. This is spoken of all over the place. Jesus is the victory. Jesus wins, wins, and you need to be on the winning side. Uh, Isaiah tells us in 11, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, uh, by the breath of his mouth, and, and then, excuse me, 11, Isaiah 11 says, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. All the Lord has to say is speak, and it's done. And how will it be? It will be decisive to verse number 8, and it will bring an end by the appearance of his coming. All the Lord has to do is show up, and it's done. So the visible presence of the Lord Jesus in the world will put an immediate stop to an accelerated diabolical program. Now, what is interesting about this passage of Scripture is that in verse number 9, it says that is the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, that he puts the destruction of the Antichrist in verse 8, and then he mentions in verse number 9, hey, I want to let you know something, that the Antichrist is really riding on the coattails and picking up the very theme concerning the coming of Christ. That is, in a sense, why he also has a coming. The same word used for Christ's coming is used for his coming. Parousia. There is a working contrast between Christ coming and the lawless ones coming, and that means there will be a day in which He makes His appearance on the world scene, and His arrival will be ultimately uh, be, will be ultimately be one like He is a special person. He is the answer to everyone's problem, and then ultimately He's going to proclaim Himself as God. But he doesn't do it right away. He also comes with a full bag of tricks to substantiate his claim. And these tricks are used to sway his audience towards accepting him for who he says he is. So the next thing you see, that the lawlessness has sway over his audience. Notice in verse number 9 and 10, the lawless one's power. He has power to sway his subjects. It says in verse number 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. That means the nature of power behind this coming man of lawlessness is the supernatural working and power of Satan. Satan. Himself, satanic power, adversarial power. Therefore, Satan is not only behind the lawless one, but is the source of his power to deceive. So consequently, the man of lawlessness, he will act in harmony and in agreement with the working that is characteristic of Satan himself. Now just a look at four distinguishable tricks he has in his bag, that Satan is is going to mimic and counterfeit the counsels of God and Christ. He will mimic the true and living God by all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Verse number 9, he'll have all power. That means he will have an inherent supernatural power to perform miracles. He will have all signs, That by which something is known or distinguished, a sign will be. That means there will be something behind the miracle. And most likely, what it's going to be, it's going to be pointed to some important characteristic trait of the man of lawlessness to show how capable he is, how important he is, especially for the solution of the world's problems and the Jewish problem. You know, no one's ever solved the Jewish problem. You realize that, right? Well, he's going to come and give the appearance that he's going to solve the Jewish problem, because he does it without war. But it's only, as he says in the verse number 9, all false wonders, it's only lies, it's only untruths. But remember, Satan can take the truth and twist it. That's what he does. He takes part of the truth and twists it a little bit, and it becomes a lie, right? That's what he did in the garden. He's still up to it. He's, he's going to do it in the tribulation, and he's going to do it so skillfully, he will make a lie sound more truth, true than truth, truth itself. He's that skilled. I said that he was an incredible orator. He's able to sway and convince his audience. So, so the power to perform these signs will direct one's attention to the authenticity of his claims, and the false wonders will at the same time hold the spectators awestruck so as to produce a desire in them to venerate this end-time man. In other words, to worship him. And that's the plan of Satan all along, to get the person's worship off the true and living God on him because he's presenting himself as the Christ, as the true and living God. And take notice, the man of lawlessness is a counterfeit Christ. What he does follows closely after what Christ has done. In fact, these three words for the miracles of Christ, found in Hebrews 2.4, his power, his signs, his wonders, are all used here to refer to Antichrist. But behind them is an energy of Satan, just as Jesus foretold in Matthew twenty four twenty four. What does he say there? He says that, listen, by these wonders, he will almost lead astray the very elect. What does it say there? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show what? Great signs. And wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He is that good. And if that is not enough, Scripture adds one more thing in his bag of tricks in verse number 10 and with all deception of wickedness, that he will have at his disposal deceit. This is what he is best at. He will know what kind of bait to put on the hook to get people to buy his plan. The man of lawlessness will employ every form of deception that unrighteousness can design and devise. Why does he do it? So he misleads his subject without them even catching on to his crooked manipulations. That's what he does. And who are his subjects? Look at verse number 10. The end of verse number 10. The subjects of his seductive power for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the troops so as to be saved. So these deceptive workings of the lawless one do, he has a target audience. Those who perish. Those who are remain lost. Those who are ruined. See, the ruin has begun because the path they followed in conduct and character showed themselves to be children of perishing. And the reason for their perishing, the reason for their ruin, the reason for their present lostness, well, verse number 10, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. So we didn't even in the tribulation, people can be saved. We have the 144,000. We have the, the two witnesses. We have the angels preaching the gospel. People are getting saved in the tribulation. And even with that, they refuse to believe. They refuse to receive, believe the gospel. They desperately reject the divine offer of salvation. They don't receive it. They don't accept it. They don't take it. They don't want it. Why? Because they have their trust in the Antichrist. They refuse Christian salvation. And that, of course, that is the gospel in contrast with lying and deceit. So, brethren, the purpose of the truth to those who obey it is the salvation of their souls. The only reason why we're saved, if we claim to be saved this morning, the only reason why you're saved is because you believed in the only remedy for your salvation, and that's you received the love of the truth And what's the love of the truth? That God demonstrates his love, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, right? See, we receive that. And because we receive that, we're rescued from his wrath. And the church is rescued from the wrath to come. So they're unwilling. And it it implies much more than admiration whether intellectual, emotional, or or aesthetic, it's really they, they refuse the committal to the truth. To accept the love of truth is therefore to be equivalent to obeying the truth. You know, the gospel message is a message to be obeyed. If someone decides not to even think about it or hear it or ignore it, that means you're just not obeying it. But when God calls us, and that resistible grace comes to us by the Holy Spirit of God, and God opens up our eyes and makes us alive, all of a sudden, what do we want? We want Christ. That's all we want. We want the truth. Because that is the truth. That's the love of the truth. And it's it's found in the person of Christ that God's solution for sin is firmly fixed in a particular person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ not in an institution or an organization, not in a club, a society, a fellowship, a denominational church or a state church. It's not even in the human priest or a list of do's and don'ts or a set of sacraments to participate in or amount of masses attended or any such thing or even the amount of good works accomplished. No, according to Scripture, it is only in the person of Jesus Christ who is the Savior. And there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's not only then, but now. Having no love for the truth, Desmond Hebert says, they remain ignorant of the uh, the magnitude of the gift being offered them they displayed a criminal indifference toward their eternal wel- welfare, recognizing neither their danger nor their way of escape. End quote. So in other words, be diligent to be found in Christ. Be faithful to be found in Christ. Because what happened at the cross? God piled on the sins of his people to Christ. Christ and then pronounced judgment upon his son as the representative of his people. At the cross, God poured out on his son the wrath of eternal punishment, which your sins and my sins deserved. And God treating his son as what? As a criminal. And Jesus bore the wrath and judgment of the Father in behalf of sinful, ungodly, unholy people like you and I. And that's still the message. It will always be the message. There's no other message. For all eternity, that's the message. We'll worship the lamb in the eternal state. The lamb who what? Shed his blood for his children. That's who we we'll worship. Now let's face it. If God gave us what our sins deserve, there would be nothing but wrath and judgment we would deserve. So if you refuse to receive his only solution, his crucified son, his death in behalf of sinners, his shed blood, his resurrection, he can do no other than his just character demands, and that's to send people away from him into hell. The lake of fire will be the final place. So God's solution for man is adequate for all men. It is offered to all people without discrimination. And what is is really interesting about this passage of Scripture in the tribulation, what does God do when they reject the love of the truth? Well, look at verse number 11 and 12, and I'll close there. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness god reveals their heart right there so god so you don't want to, in the tribulation there's no that's why we're not in the age of grace in the tribulation god sends strong delusion that they believe a lie they'll, they'll believe what satan and the antichrist will tell them So, brethren, we have to be very serious, sober, that we live our lives faithfully until God's plan is is going to go forward. But make sure you're in Christ. Make sure that you are found in Christ. As, As Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligently to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. That is what we ought to be doing. But it also... Scripture ought to be doing this, making us stronger, making us more confident in the Word of God and in the person of Christ, and even excite our soul to know, hey, this world is passing away. We're at the end of it. Someday, very soon, we're going to be face-to-face with Christ. Amen? And so the next thing on God's program is the rapture of the church and the Bema of seed judgment that we're not going to be judged for our sin. We're going to be judged for the works we've done, after conversion. So don't sit there with your arms folded and do nothing, right? You better be working for the Lord, giving your life for the Lord, right? Until he comes. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Lord, the, the word of God is sometimes really hard. It, it really shoots from the hip. And Lord, it, it has a strong punch. But Lord, thank you for that Thank you that you, you've given these truths to your church. Not everybody knows these things or even believes these things or holds to them, and some believe that it's just a fairy tale. It's not. It's real. Lord, make us faithful believers who are comforted by these words, who are encouraged by these words, and also, Lord, help us keep knowing that your plan is going to take place and these are the things that are going to happen. So, Lord, let us be ready For whether you take us by death or you come, let us be ready. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.